Hello and welcome to the Club Chimera Martial Arts Podcast. My name is Jamie Club, and my intention with these shows is to discuss various issues in the world of martial arts and self-protection that have inspired my teaching, training and writing. If you're interested in the material I cover, please check out the show notes at the end of this program and also my website, clubchimera.com. Don't forget, I'm holding a special double seminar on the 17th of March 2019 in Malden, Essex in the UK. More details of this are at the end of this episode and on this episode's show notes. Please also stay tuned for an important announcement regarding the special end-of-year show. This episode is the second part of a two-part show called The Yoga Myth. If you haven't heard part one, then I recommend that you go back and give it a listen before plunging into this one. This episode takes us into the myths of the yoga martial arts connection and also reveals some interesting facts about their relationship. I hope you enjoy the show. There is no proven connection between the Indian Buddhist monk Bodhidharma and Chinese martial arts. Of all the many works written about the Shaolin martial arts before the 19th century, none mentioned Bodhidharma. Furthermore, it's unlikely that Bodhidharma was a yogin. There is very little contemporary biographical detail on the monk, but the simple fact that he was transmitting Buddhist teachings and is credited with establishing Chan Buddhism in China shows he would have had little interest in directly teaching Hindu philosophies. From a pre-modern perspective, yoga was only ever referred to as a spiritual practice and as part of the religion of Hinduism. This is a significant point when it comes to its status as a preserved ancient tradition. One of Bodhidharma's main teachings would have been in the practice of dhyana meditation. This type of deep meditation originated in yoga, but like many Hindu traditions, was altered through Buddhism. Dhyana meditation takes a disciple through eight levels of internal absorption, or jhana, where outside and inside perceptions are cut off. However, what distinguishes the Buddhist version of this meditative state is that this process is highly systemized with the meditator retaining a sharp awareness throughout. The yogin, by contrast, zones everything out. The Buddhist seeks to move through the eighth jhana to reach the state of nirvana, full awareness or enlightenment. There is no historical evidence to support the assumption that the Shaolin Temple was at the heart of martial arts development before the 20th century. This is a topic for another day, but we can summarise that Shaolin did produce warrior monks, and those warriors are praised by contemporaries for the development of staff fighting techniques. But much of their martial arts reputation has been hugely distorted by early 20th century pulp fiction. The roots of Chinese martial arts can be found, for the most part, in its considerable military traditions rather than its religious ones. Whether they were the soldiers of the various imperial houses that ruled over the two millennia long empire or the various militias set up by rebellious factions during this history, these are the people we should look towards for the development of fighting arts. Religion, as is nearly always the case when it comes to looking back at the historical development of different martial arts, is normally incidental to the practice of the training in fighting systems. Yoga's historical influence over such training methods would not be direct. China already had their own Taoist traditions that promoted breathing exercises, meditation and the supposed cultivation of invisible energy or qi. Qigong is a classic example of this type of discipline. The Yi Jin Jing or Muscle Tendon Change Classic is a manual that describes and demonstrates just such a system of breathing and muscular movement. These exercises, of which the exact number has often been contested, are now popularly accepted as a cornerstone to Shaolin martial arts training. In turn, it's been claimed that the author of this work was none other than Bodhidharma. This claim has been linked to a foreword to the book attributed to the famous Tang Dynasty general Li Jing. However, the great martial arts critical thinker Tang Yao 
debunked this claim in the early 20th century. The alleged Li Jing forward and another one claiming authorship from a Song dynasty officer called Niu Gao were full of historical inaccuracies and folk hero tropes that has proven it to be a fraudulent work of fiction. The Yi Jin Jing has been dated back to around 1624, where it was probably the product of a Taoist priest called Zinning, and definitely not the legendary Buddhist monk. The complete dismissal of Bodhidharma as a yogic connection to martial arts doesn't discount yoga's possible influence over martial arts. Ancient India and China had a two millennia long peaceful respect for one another, with both countries taking in regular visitors from their neighbour. Buddhism is perhaps India's most famous philosophical import, becoming even more popular in China than its country of origin. However, Hinduism also seeded in China and has a minority representation today. Yoga certainly travelled there and has been practised as its own discipline, as well as being combined with Taoist tantric methods for centuries. Going by this, one might say that it stands to reason that the physical exercise side to martial arts training would have involved some training in yoga. That would seem logical if there wasn't a strong argument being made by some yoga historians and scholars that yoga as a means for physical exercise is a relatively modern pursuit. In 2010, Mark Singleton, a lecturer at St. John's College, Santa Fe, New Mexico, produced a controversial yet critically acclaimed book, The Yoga Body, the origins of modern yoga posture practice that shook up the subculture of yoga teachers. In his book, Singleton made the case that although yoga traditions have changed through the centuries, their purpose has long been focused on the fusion of the mind with the spirit. The physical side had little purpose to the majority of pre-20th century or even pre-19th century yogins, or at least there was far less emphasis on the physical side of yoga than we accept today. Prior to the introduction of Tantra, the mainstream Hindu yoga belief was that the physical world was a terrible existence that had to be overcome. The idea was to break the karmic wheel of reincarnation and to transcend into a spiritual existence. Tantra teaching, which began to emerge in the 4th century CE and eventually blossomed in the 6th century, preached valuing the body as a vehicle or house for the divine. Still, this did not automatically turn yoga into a physical exercising program. It remained entirely a religious discipline. In her article for the Elephant Journal, yoga teacher Amy Vaughan questioned the importance of yoga's postures. Vaughan's lead into this line of questioning came from the point that asana practice was considered to be just the third of the eight limbs of yoga. If you dig deeper, she writes, you discover that the word asana specifically means seat or meditation posture. We don't know how long it took for the siddha or religious teachers of tantric yoga to perfect the accepted postures of hatha yoga, but we do know that these postures were recorded in the three most venerated classical texts on the discipline, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, Shiva Samhita and Garinda Samhita. These texts date from the 14th to the 17th century respectively. Today Hatha Yoga is considered to be the main route for the most popular forms of yoga practice. In the pre-modern era, it was the most asana heavy of yoga schools. However, despite making the case that these yogins fought a hard struggle against the concept of disdain for the physical body, these texts are not filled with posture descriptions. Like all classical yoga, the spiritual and meditative state is mainly emphasised. The physical side is mainly expressed through the spiritual mudra gestures and breathing methods. The earliest of the three texts, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, asserts the deity Shiva taught 84 asanas, but only the first four of these are essential. The perfect posture, the lotus posture, the lion posture and the fortunate posture. These are all seated postures. Despite addressing asanas first, the text only describes 15 postures of the 84 it references. Although some of these postures require considerable balance and flexibility, there are no warrior poses, dog facing up or down and no head or handstands. 
Indeed, there are no standing postures whatsoever. The perfect posture is considered to be the only necessary posture. The Shiva Samhita only lists four postures together and only one of these, the formidable pose, is not contained in the Pradipika text. These are only addressed in the third chapter. A fifth asana, the head-knee pose, is then later described in the fourth chapter. An interesting point that Vaughan notes is that the Shiva Samhita describes the struggle Hatha yogins had with overcoming the concept of disdaining the physical form that prevails in most classical yoga, further demonstrating how little importance yoga has historically placed on asana practice. The newest of the texts, the Garanda Samhita, states that Shiva described 8,400,000 asanas. However, 84 of these are best and only 32 are useful to humankind. The 32 are listed and only the tree pose is a standing posture. As Vaughan summarises, of all the poses listed in the central classical text of Hatha Yoga, over half are seated positions and only one, the aforementioned tree, is done standing. There are no sun salutations. We should note that this is all document-based evidence, and it is fair to say that there were secret teachings, oral traditions, and much that wasn't written down. However, to offer context and perspective, Hatha Yoga, being medieval, was a relatively modern form of yoga compared to the ancient forms that have been practiced for centuries. We know it was distinguished from the other disciplines for being the most posture-heavy, yet its central text spends less time on asanas than they do on the spiritual side and areas that you wouldn't find in your average modern-day yoga class. Prior to these texts, asana is hardly mentioned with regards to yoga. Ancient Hindu scriptures such as the Bhagavad Gita, one of the most famous texts of the Mahabharata epic, only references asana as a comfortable seated position. Hatha yoga, despite picking up an enduring following, was a minority practice until the 19th century. Mark Singleton's thorough, comprehensive and detailed scholarly investigation into modern yoga practice cites both national and international prejudice against Hatha yoga before the late 19th century. The age-old yoga teaching against training the physical body appears to have been a pervading religious influence up to this point. Eurocentric ideas regarding aesthetically pleasing athleticism made Western travellers consider many of the more extreme asanas to be crude and distasteful. Yogins and Muslim fakirs became interchangeable in the minds of visiting Westerners. Vagabond ascetics such as these were feared for their influence in raising rebel militias in colonised India. Their brutal suppression led these holy men to make their living through what amounted to street entertainment. There is nothing new in religious people using a combination of illusion and stunts to impress viewers and even raise rebellions. I'm often reminded of Eunice, a prophet and supposed miracle worker who led the slave revolt of the First Servile War in 135 BCE Sicily by running at the head of his army breathing fire. Cult leaders such as the infamous Reverend Jim Jones used sleight of hand to perform miracle operations on cancer patients where he pulled chicken gizzards out, giving the illusion he had removed the offending tumours. I grew up in the circus world where the term fakir had come to describe a fusion of strongman acts, magic acts and body modifications. Tricks involved the aforementioned fire breathing, sometimes with lying on beds of nails, walking on hot coals and pushing sharp objects through ready-made holes in an individual's body. This performance has nothing in essence to do with either Hindu yoga or Sufi Muslim asceticism. Our previous episode touched upon the video game character Dalasiam, whose use of fire is associated with yoga. This clearly comes from the popular show business portrayal that grew out of the Indian street entertainer's need to draw attention to either his religious message or, as increasingly became the case, to make a living rather than any direct connection with the meditative religious practice.
In 1897, Yogi Bhava Lakman Dras travelled to London to exhibit his contortionist act that was sold as Indian yoga. Other Indians followed suit. Meanwhile, the physical health culture movement was becoming very influential in the West. The same racist colonials who looked down at Hatha Yoga's postures and often mistook them for the contortionist acts that they had observed on the streets were quick to describe the Indian race as weak and effete. The physical health culture had emerged through the growing prosperity of Western middle classes people were being encouraged to take better care of their bodies in line with the mainstream embracing of holistic spiritual philosophies. The reinvention and resurrection of the Olympic Games in 1896 surely symbolises this pervading change in attitude. The sport of bodybuilding emerged as a child of the Strongman Act and physical health culture. Spearheaded by the likes of Eugene Sando, it would have a strong influence over Indian nationals determined to counter the racist propaganda that their fellow countrymen were physically inferior to their European oppressors. Bodybuilding, gymnastics and indigenous wrestling all influence the eventual propagation of a type of Indian physical culture. This physical culture often became labelled as yoga. Various exercises not unique to yoga and certainly not part of historic Indian yoga, hatha or otherwise, were appropriated by the many propagators of this nationalist movement. In parallel to this early 20th century movement, the West were also developing a series of rhythmic gymnastics programs usually aimed at women that bear an uncanny resemblance to what we see in mainstream yoga classes today. Looking at these exercise programs, one can see a series of different postures that required increased levels of balance and flexibility. A lot of time is focused on breathing techniques, meditation, and all wrapped up with religious moral messages. Of course, in this case, the religious moral message was in the form of Christianity rather than Hinduism. Nevertheless, there was clearly a melting pool of influences occurring across three continents that embraced the concept of holistic training. In India, Hatha Yoga gradually emerged from being a minority discipline scorned by the rest of the yoga community for its marked emphasis on physicality to virtually becoming a byword for Indian athleticism. The millennia-held yoga view that looked at the flesh and blood form with disdain was gradually being replaced in some parts and certainly on the international scene with an image of being a supreme method for increasing flexibility, balance, strength and control of the internal organs. For a while, various Indian bodybuilders in the first half of the 20th century credited their background in yoga for their physiques. The West began to take notice and in many ways reverse ideas about Indian bodybuilding fitness began to be written into physical culture magazines and books. However, rather than simply paying deserved and accurate credit to verifiable historical forms of Indian physical training, yoga was often becoming a catch-all term, particularly Hatha Yoga. However, it wasn't until the 1940s that a concerted attempt was made to modernise Hatha Yoga, placing an even stronger emphasis on posture practice. The biggest innovator in this respect was K. Patabi Joyce. In 1948, he founded the Ashtanga Yoga Research Institute in Mysore, India. The Mysore style of yoga came from the Hatha tradition and involved students learning a sequence of asanas. In line with the original intentions of what has become known as the Mysore style, students are taught individually within a group with their sequence of asanas based on their age, ability and level of experience. They each then move through them at their own pace. This Ashtanga Vinyasa system has since been further modified into classes that all learn at the same pace and go through the same movements together. The martial artist might easily compare the series of postures that are slowly transitioned through with carefully controlled breathing techniques to a form, pooms or kata. During this modernisation period, new postures were added, borrowed from Indian wrestling and gymnastics. A greater number of standing postures, such as the warrior pose, were introduced. The wrestling push-up, known as a dand, became the downward-facing and upward-facing dog poses. Various international pupils, such as Indra Devi, began bringing Ashtanga Yoga to the West. 
Her enthusiasm and influence coincided with the rise of the counterculture movement that took off in 1960s USA and Europe. Ashtanga Yoga became one of several successful ideas that was embraced by the New Age movement and transitioned into mainstream commercial acceptance. Mark Singleton's work is controversial in the yoga world, but a lot of it is difficult to dispute. Certainly the most common form of yoga we see being practiced today as a form of exercise has little to do with the ancient Hindu tradition that has been practiced for over three millennia. The yoga myth shows us that many grappling systems that are saying they are incorporating yoga exercise into their training might be just reintroducing older exercises from martial arts and gymnastics. However, there are verifiable historic martial arts connections and parallels within yoga traditions. Firstly, we have to go back to the Indian street entertainers, these panhandling yogins who had been reduced to these circumstances had once been warriors. Although yoga has never been a martial art, those who followed the ancient path of yoga had formed militias, often rebelling against the colonials. To 18th century westerners, the term yoga was associated with their ragtag groups of fighting men who fought with religious zeal. Our first comparison here might be with the oppressed Chinese secret societies who were similarly motivated by spiritual belief and also practiced martial arts. The final and most significant uprising of these people occurred at the turn of the 20th century with the Boxer Rebellion. The Indian yoga armies were put down almost a century before this time, and the yogins were dispersed into becoming travelling mystics who added various tricks to their street-performing repertoire. Inspired by Bankim Kandra Chatterjee's novel of 1880, Anandamath, several militant nationalist groups began springing up again in India. These groups embraced the Indian physical culture movement and trained in martial arts. One of these groups was led by Sarala Debi Gosal, who identified with Bankim's heroine Shanti, in organising a physical culture campaign. Debbie became a strong advocate of women's rights, especially in helping to defend women from sexual assault from the occupying British soldiers. She and her supporters began raising gymnasiums that sought to emulate the fighting yogins of the past. Indeed, the practice of yoga at these gymnasiums became a cover for training in combat and revolutionary activity. Here we see the comparison with various other martial arts systems that use dance to hide their fight training. Capoeira is the most celebrated example of this tradition. Yoga has a complicated historical past. As with martial arts history, many have changed yoga's living tradition to serve certain causes. One might see its transformation from an almost entirely spiritual practice to a physical discipline, and the mythology that has been used to change these facts has something akin to Asian martial arts history in reverse. Much of the desire to pretend that yoga is an ancient system of exercise which was part of the Indocentric nationalist propaganda is an appeal to antiquity. One does not need this logical fallacy to enjoy the benefits of a disciplined system of breathing, stretching, balancing and focusing of the mind. Indeed, becoming more aware of the changes being made and their purpose can only promote more functional progress. Various lessons taken from modern yoga are helpful to physical training. As mentioned in the previous episode, good breathing is a huge game changer for the combatant, whether they are entering a tournament, dealing with an assault or coming out of a firefight. Likewise, Better balance promotes stronger stability in joints and greater functionality in techniques. The benefits of flexibility almost goes without saying, but besides providing a great range of movement, it can help aid blood circulation. When we start to boil down certain fundamental elements of yoga, there are some key traits I see being shared in self-protection and martial arts training. I've often found myself questioning 
what is the prime lesson for dealing with the threat of violence? This was especially relevant when I considered teaching self-protection to children. My experience in working to develop an honest and realistic approach to this area of teaching made me consider the core rule for enabling a person with a better chance of survival in a violent situation. This would be a rule, a piece of advice even, that would inform attitude and be consistent through all the physical and non-physical aspects of self-protection. The rule, which applies to all areas of combat, is to take charge. Taking charge of situations starts with self-governance. Even if we do not go into the spiritual side of yoga, or even practice yoga, which I don't anymore, there is much to be said for simply clearing time for yourself to think and take some mindful control. I'm again teaching a double seminar in March 2019 at the Blackwater Leisure Centre, Malden, Essex in the UK. The first two hours will be part of my When Parents Aren't Around Children's Self-Protection Programme, starting at 11am and the last three hours starting at 1.30pm will be part of my Vagabond Warriors Martial Arts Cross Training Programme. I hope to see some of you there. Please book your tickets through Lee Mullen of Keiru Practical Karate. I'm very honoured to be invited to teach for Lee's club who has kindly opened its doors to anyone interested in attending. I no longer teach regular classes, so this is an opportunity for those who live a bit too far afield to attend my private lessons to experience the Club Chimera Martial Arts approach. Links are in the show notes for this episode. Don't forget to check out all the other cool free material online that this podcast happily endorses. Ian Abernethy's podcast is a must-listen for all martial artists. I say this as a non-traditionalist and a non-karateka. Long-time listeners or followers of my material will know that Ian's a good friend of mine, but before I met the guy, his material was a big inspiration to me and continues to be to this day. Other great podcasts include T.W. Smith's wonderfully rich Kung Fu podcast. Again, don't be put off by the name if you don't train in Chinese martial arts. T.W.'s range of subjects in the martial arts world is varied and he promotes scholarly research, scientific approaches and training pragmatism. Chris Wilder's podcast work continues to be consistently professional and as regular as clockwork. Many of us could learn from Chris's schedule. His short shows are perfect to listen to during a warm-up session or for that short commute. Lee Sims' podcast also takes a practical look at traditional martial arts and Lee is one of the leading figures in the legal side of self-defence. Gretchen Carlson's martial journeys are a sheer joy to listen to. Gretchen focuses on a wide range of topics, offering fascinating insight and often with a wry sense of humour. Speaking of humour and getting the balance just right with useful information, don't forget Sensei Ando's very entertaining and informative show. If you're stuck for digital stocking fillers for your martial arts friends, why not get a copy of one of my ebooks? Mordred's Victory for those who are interested in reading some of my earlier works. When Parents Aren't Around is a great present for that pre-teen and their parents. Then there's Rong Fu the prequel to my upcoming Bullshit Zoo series. For that non-martial artist who might be interested in another bit of myth-busting, cultural history or just plain light stories about elephants, there is the special anniversary edition of The Legend of Sultan Source. Be sure to keep up to date with everything Club Chimera. Please like and follow my Facebook page, follow my Twitter page and YouTube channel. Next episode is a special Christmas and New Year show, which will mean... I have ended my first entire year of podcasting. I really love this medium and I find I'm learning more all the time. Podcasting is something I've been a fan of for a very, very long time. To have free access to what seems like loads of mini audiobooks ensures that I now get very little dead time. What I mean by dead time is those periods of the day when you have to do lengthy menial chores or make lone car journeys where you could have been learning new information or simply being enriched by experiencing new stories. Podcasts are a great way to become more educated or inspired. Anyway, to celebrate this occasion, I'm asking to engage more fully with you. 
please send in your questions and I will do my best to answer them. Either email me or post them up on my social media pages. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks for listening.